Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. It is my distinct honor and pleasure to introduce Dr. William Yu, who is Associate Professor of American Religious and Cultural History um, and the director of the MDiv program at Columbia Theological Seminary in Decatur, Georgia. Decatur, Georgia. Dr. Yu has previously written about the transnational histories of American Protestant world missions in Korea and Korean immigrant relig religious communities as well as the histories of Presbyterianism and Protestant theological education in the U.S. His latest book titled, What Kind of Christianity? Question mark covers the history and legacy of slavery and anti-Black racism in American Presbyterianism. His current research interests include tracing the histories of racial injustice, settler colonialism, and slavery in the U.S. and examining indigenous, Black, and Asian American theologies of freedom and resistance. He is also a minister of word and sacrament in the Presbyterian Church, USA. Please welcome Dr. William Yu. And just a brief word of programming, we're gonna have uh, between 45 to 60 minutes of a presentation with time for Q&A afterwards, running till about 4.30 p.m. Eastern. Dr. Yu, the floor is yours. Oh, thank you very much. It is good to be with you all here at Princeton Seminary and also on AirMeet. Dr. Katie Geneva Cannon, a womanist theologian and the first black American woman to be ordained as a Presbyterian minister in 1974, once asked, quote, where was the church and the Christian believers when black women and black men, black boys and black girls were being raped, sexually abused, lynched, assassinated, castrated, and physically oppressed? What kind of Christianity allowed white Christians to deny basic human rights and simple dignity to blacks, these same rights which had been given to others without question? End quote. In 1836, approximately 250 commissioners from across the northern and southern states gathered in Pittsburgh for the annual meeting of the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, PCUSA hereafter, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the nation with over 2,800 congregations and nearly 220,000 members. One of the matters these Presbyterians would grapple with was their church's position on the enslavement of more than two million black persons. It would neither be the first nor the last time Presbyterians at a general assembly meeting would engage slavery. But this particular occasion presented one of the clearest opportunities for the denomination to answer important questions about where the PCUSA stood on slavery and what kind of Christianity it would profess and practice. On May 19th, the meeting began at 11 o'clock a.m. in the morning with a worship service. William W. Phillips, the white pastor of First Presbyterian Church in New York City and moderator of the previous year's General Assembly, preached from Romans chapter one, verses 16 and 17, a text emphasizing that Christians must not be ashamed of the gospel and imploring the just to live by faith. Yet some Presbyterians were in fact deeply ashamed of their denomination's reluctance to participate in, mo in movements for the emancipation of enslaved black persons. 
One year prior in 1835, the Chillicothe Presbytery in Ohio sent a letter to other presbyteries beseeching them to adopt its resolutions on slavery. The members of the Chillicothe Presbytery were aware that some of their fellow Presbyterians, even in Northern states that had abolished slavery, either demurred on or outright declined to address slavery because for some they understood it as a political matter outside the spiritual jurisdiction of their church. In response, the Chillicothe Presbytery found black enslavement to be in their words, a heinous sin and scandal. They demanded action from all Presbyterians because their churches, again in their words, purity and prosperity was at stake. One of the Presbytery's most controversial recommendations was more stringent disciplinary measures against slave owning members, such as suspension from the Lord's Supper, a significant sacrament within the Presbyterian tradition. Although the General Assembly in 1818 declared the voluntary enslaving of one part of the human race by another was a gross violation of human rights and totally irreconcilable with the spirit and principles of the gospel of Christ, the exhortation to forbear harsh censures toward enslavers in the same resolution resulted in no concrete actions toward black liberation and produced the kind of Christianity that the Chillicothe Presbytery could no longer tolerate. General Assembly commissioners in 1836 knew that they would have to engage slavery. In the previous year, a memorial on the subject of slavery signed by 198 persons was presented to the General Assembly and referred to a committee of five white ministers with Samuel Miller, a professor from Princeton Theological Seminary serving as the chairperson. Miller was an enslaver and embodied the kind of Christianity that the Chillicothe Presbytery could no longer tolerate. Miller acknowledged that there were sinful actions within slavery, but he did not believe that slavery was in itself a heinous sin and looked to steer the committee toward what he understood as a measure of compromise that neither strongly praised slavery as divinely ordained nor supported abolition as a righteous cause. But Professor Miller needed help. He was not sure whether his committee's report alone could abate the rising tide of abolition in his beloved denomination. And this help would come from his faculty colleague, Professor Charles Hodge. By 1863, Hodge had acquired a reputation as one of the most renowned Christian theologians in the United States. In 1825, he founded a theological journal that gained enormous influence among its Presbyterian readership as well as intellectual elites across many academic disciplines. He wrote numerous articles about the Bible, reform theology, and ecclesial matters, but Hodge had yet to write about slavery. Though Hodge was an enslaver, he was able to remain publicly silent on black enslavement for several years. He, like other white Presbyterians, took refuge in his denomination's non-binding declaration against slavery from the General Assembly in 1818, that again denounced it in principle, but recommended no disciplinary action against enslavers. But the stirrings of black liberation forced Hodge's hand. Hodge understood that abolitionists in his denomination saw the General Assembly meeting in 1836 as an opportunity to move the PCUSA 
toward a more actionable polity on slavery, such as banning slave-owning members from the communion table. So Hodge published his first essay on slavery one month before the General Assembly gathered. Hodge argued that the debates concerning slavery must be resolved according to the Bible. And he observed that while slavery existed throughout the first century Greco-Roman world, Jesus Christ and the disciples neither denounced slaveholding as necessarily and universally sinful in his words, nor pronounced that, quote, all slaveholders were men stealers and robbers and consequently to be excluded from the church and the kingdom of heaven, end quote. Instead, according to Hodge, the apostles sanctioned and regulated slavery with specific precepts for masters and slaves. Hodge appealed to these New Testament mandates for slaves with, again, in his words, believing or Christian masters, believing or Christian masters, not to despise them because they were on a perfect religious equality with them, but to consider the fact that their masters were their brethren as an additional reason for obedience, end quote. Christian enslavers were likewise instructed to be kind and just in their slave ownership, but they were not taught, taught according to Hodge, to emancipate their slaves. Therefore, Hodge fiercely criticized abolitionists for incorrectly interpreting the Bible and forcing their agenda upon it to usurp the authority of Jesus Christ and the apostles. For in Hodge's words, Jesus and the apostles were the authors of our religion, and it was wrong for the abolitionists to appeal to the New Testament in their struggle for black liberation. Almost instantly, Hodge's article was widely circulated, frequently quoted, and reprinted in several formats, including in a pamphlet distributed on the floor of the General Assembly in 1836. One historian argues that Hodge published in the Princeton Review and in separate pamphlets, perhaps the most important and instructive contributions toward the formation of a national pro-slavery ideology of any 19th century American. White Presbyterians in the Southern states praised Hodge for what they saw as his theological clarity and scriptural precision that they believed he had demonstrated in his article. They celebrated the fact that one of their denomination's finest thinkers and most respected leaders, a professor teaching at their flagship seminary in a Northern state defended black enslavement. Because of the po racial power structures in the Presbyterian church, as well as the scourge of anti-black racism in the Northern states, some white Presbyterians publicly protested Hodge's article, whereas black Presbyterians fumed and collaborated with their white allies privately. Garrett Smith, a white Presbyterian industrialist in New York, railed against Hodge in 1837 for defending American slavery on biblical grounds, despite acknowledging its many sins of physical and spiritual abuse toward enslaved persons. He mocked Hodge for lending his authority as a, quote, professor of theology, end quote, to support slavery in his, quote, polished but pernicious article on slavery, end quote. Mariah Green, a white Presbyterian minister teaching in higher education, attributed, attributed the inaction at the General Assembly meeting in 1836 directly to the circulation of Hodge's article there and blamed him, derisively calling Hodge our Princeton prophet for his instrumental role in uniting the denomination against black liberation. Another white Presbyterian pastor, Samuel Crothers, observed in 1837 that Hodge's article provided cover to white slave-owning ministers and proponents of slavery. 
He noted that in the months following Hodge's article, these pastors opted to quote from Hodge's article rather than defend slavery in their own words. Indeed, the two Princeton Seminary professors, Miller and Hodge, succeeded in their mission. The commissioners in 1836 ultimately decided that the question of slavery be indefinitely postponed. Two weeks after his sermon exhorting fellow Presbyterians to practice their faith as unashamed ambassadors of the gospel, William W. Phillips, a commissioner of the New York Presbytery, voted in favor of this indefinite postponement on any discussion and decision regarding slavery. Some abolitionists therefore condemned white Presbyterians as the guiltiest perpetrators of slavery and the fiercest opponents of black liberation. Stephen S. Foster, a white congregationalist and husband of Abby Foster Kelly, a prominent activist for abolitionism and women's rights, accused white Presbyterians in 1843 of leveraging their considerable influence to commit the utmost evils. Because white Presbyterians were not content with simply participating as enslavers, but they also constituted, according to Foster, the most active and energetic enemies of the abolition movement, Foster stated of Presbyterianism, no sect in the land has done more to perpetuate slavery than this. And returning to one of Dr. Cannon's searing questions, asking what kind of Christianity allowed white Christians to deny basic human rights and simple dignity to black persons? The most obvious answer is the wrong kind of Christianity. In 1845, Frederick Douglass, a formerly enslaved black man who escaped his enslaver in Maryland, differentiated between genuine Christianity and in his words, the corrupt, slave-holding, woman-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land in his autobiographical narrative. In the years following his best-selling autobiography, Douglas emerged as one of the most prominent abolitionists, intellectuals, and social reformers of the 19th century. Douglas also criticized the hypocrisy of white Christians who upheld marriage and family as divine blessings while denying millions of enslaved persons these basic human rights with the absence of laws protecting enslaved marriages and families from separation in auctions, sales, and transfers. In addition to the wrong kind of Christianity, I believe a more, a more historically precise and honest answer to Dr. Cannon's question is the Presbyterian kind of Christianity, as well as the Princeton Seminary kind of Christianity. The college in Princeton, where Charles Hodge and his father, Hugh Hodge, were nurtured as students in the seminary, where Charles Hodge taught as a professor, were among the most complicit educational institutions. During the presidency of John Witherspoon from 1768 to 1794, Princeton University welcomed white students from elite slave-owning families and had an unusually high percentage of its enrollment from the Southern states. In Craig Stephen Wilder's History of Slavery and Higher Education in, in the United States, Wilder finds that at Princeton, quote, the percentage of young men from the South more than doubled during Witherspoon's tenure while the proportion from elite backgrounds more than tripled, end quote. Another historian notes that as much as one third of the student population at the college was from the Southern states between 1800 to 1860. And debates on slavery among students at Whig Hall, an on-campus society with a predominantly Southern membership, which Charles Hodge joined as an undergraduate, 
resulted in condemnations of abolition in 1802, 1817, 1819, 1839, and 1851. This historian adds that the climate of opinion at Princeton Seminary was just as heavy with pro-slavery influence. Hodge may not have delved into his seminary's economic ties to black enslavement in his pro-slavery writings, but I believe it is wrong to ignore or minimize the social context in which Hodge defended slavery. Hodge was exceedingly aware of the Southern currents at his Northern institution with a considerable number of students and donors from slave owning families. Garrett Smith contended in 1837 that most white Christians in Northern states believed slavery was immoral, but appealed to US laws and politics to soothe their consciences. One merchant, one merchant divulged that his opposition to abolitionists like Garrett Smith and Samuel May was not over a matter of principle, but rather it was a matter of business necessity. Garrett Smith therefore explained that a large portion of white Christians in the Northern states refused to take a stand against slavery, not necessarily for religious reasons, but for economic and social ones. Slavery was a foundational reality in their lives and they preferred the world as they knew it, even with the many evils of slavery and anti-black racism over the uncertainties of deconstructing their world and reconstructing a new one in closer accordance with the teachings of Jesus Christ. Garrett Smith therefore argued that the response of white Christians to slavery revealed that the governing principle of their faith was, in Garrett Smith's word, the doctrine of expediency. They obeyed the Bible, according to Smith, only to a certain point and made compromises whenever it was inconvenient or difficult to apply gospel principles. Garrett Smith compared the direct ways white Christians enforced discipline on other sins, such as drunkenness, with their reluctance to act for black liberation. But in relation to slavery, Smith wrote, they flatter themselves that they have discovered a more excellent way, that of leaving the sin untouched and simply hoping for its cessation at some indefinite period in the distant future, end quote. Smith added that he intentionally wrote hope instead of pray because prayer involves action. Hodge's pro-slavery article in 1836 deeply troubled Garrett Smith because the abolitionist was concerned that the Princeton Seminary professors claim that there was nothing inherently sinful about slavery represented a dangerous turn in white Presbyterianism and white Christianity in the United States. The silence of white Christians on slavery and their inactivity on abolition was problematic but Smith noted that he thought at least they believed in the sinfulness of slavery and did not publicly defend their complicity. The doctrine of expediency was enacted quietly because there are at least some pangs of guilt among white Christians for their inaction. But Smith criticized Hodge and Hodge's pro-slavery theology because it presented white Christians with another pathway on slavery, the doctrine of biblical authority. Unlike the doctrine of expediency, Hodge's doctrine of biblical authority justified both black enslavement and white complicity without concessions to convenience or confessions of sin. Hodge argued, quote, we, we may admit 
all those laws which forbid the instruction of slaves, which interfere with their marital or parental rights, which subject them to the insults and oppression of the whites, to be in the highest degree unjust without at all admitting that slaveholding itself is a crime, end quote. Family separation is a problem. Physical, sexual, spiritual abuse, they are problems. But us Christians, let us not say that slavery is in itself sinful. White Presbyterians, according to Smith's interpretation of Hodge, simply had to frown upon the injustices of slavery and hope that enslaved persons would be treated more justly in an oppressive system that stripped them of all their dignity and rights. Unlike Smith's doctrine of expediency, which required white Christians to at least acknowledge the compromises that they were making for social and economic reasons. Hodge's doctrine of biblical authority made it possible to push aside any consideration of slavery as a foundational sin that corrupted the world they inhabited. The only foundation that mattered was the existence of slavery throughout the Bible. Hodge's faculty colleague, Archibald Alexander, was also a pivotal leader in the PCUSA. Like Hodge, Alexander was elected as moderator of the General Assembly. Alexander endorsed the American Colonization Society, ACS hereafter, a movement centered in the Northern states that endeavored to send free black Americans to Liberia because Archibald Alexander felt the discriminatory contempt white Christians held against black Americans was too insurmountable to overcome. In 1846, Alexander wrote that anti-Black racism was wrong, but he did not commit to working toward racial equality. Instead of teaching white Christians to repent of their sins of racial prejudice, Alexander preferred that Black Americans, once emancipated, or those even who were free, leave the country and find another home on the African continent, where their skin color would not be so despised. Theodore S. Wright, a Black Presbyterian pastor in New York City, who graduated from Princeton Seminary in 1828, helped to lead Black opposition to the colonization movement. Wright co-authored with Samuel Eli Cornish, a Black Presbyterian pastor and journalist who founded the first African-American newspaper, an essay rebutting several of the main thrusts of the colonization movement, uh, criticizing it as immoral, irrational, and anti-Christian. They began with a searing rebuke of the exclusively white membership of the ACS. The ACS was an organization professing to work on behalf of the interests of black persons, but it did not consult or include any black persons in its work. The ACS therefore propagated racist and false ideas that black Americans universally denounced. Wright and Cornish noted that ACS members spurriously claimed that black Americans yearned in their hearts for Africa and therefore welcomed the opportunity to migrate to Liberia. Cornish and Wright noted that several months after the inaugural meeting of the ACS, 3,000 black persons gathered in Philadelphia to discuss the ACS and quote, there was not a single voice in that vast assembly which was not raised for its decisive thorough condemnation, end quote. If consulted, Black Americans would tell the ACS that what they yearned for in their hearts was equal rights and equitable access to employment and education in the United States. Cornish and Wright also challenged the ACS for accommodating rather than combating 
the anti-black racism of white Christians. In advocating for the ACS, Archibald Alexander pronounced, quote, it is in vain to declaim about the prejudice of color, however unreasonable. It will long continue to exist and will prove an effectual bar to the possession and enjoyment of the same privileges and advantages which the white population enjoy, end quote. Cornish and Wright charged the ACS with promoting a powerless gospel that surrendered to anti-Black racism as an unconquerable sin. They took the racial claims of the ACS to their theological conclusion. Quote, to this end, there is in the white man an inherent prejudice against his colored brother, so fixed that its removal, whilst the latter remains in this country, is not only beyond all human power, but beyond Christianity itself, the power of God, but that it might surely be mitigated at least, if not extinguished, provided the Atlantic Ocean could be made to roll between them, end quote. The solution to anti-Black racism was the repentance of white Christians, not the removal of black Americans. Three years earlier, Cornish, writing in his newspaper, The Colored American, called the colonization movement a subterfuge of Satan for lulling the consciences of white Americans to sleep and seducing them to believe that they were not accountable for their racial prejudices. One former white ACS member, James A. Thome, a white Presbyterian pastor in Ohio, lamented in 1834, of his participation in the ACS because it had intensified his feelings of anti-Black racism. And Thome noted how the ACS was especially dangerous because the organization was able to sanctify his racial prejudice with its world missionary rhetoric of evangelization in Africa. Black Presbyterian abolitionists also grew frustrated with some white abolitionists that urged for a slower pace to racial equality which included a strategy that focused on eradicating slavery in the Southern states without emphasizing black voting rights and anti-black discrimination in the Northern states. Theodore Wright disagreed with any approach that marginalized the pursuits of black citizenship and civil rights. Black liberation in the United States could not be divorced into two separate parts. The drive for racial equality could not be divorced from the push for abolition. Wright criticized the desire of some white abolitionists to quote, first kill slavery and leave prejudice to take care of itself, end quote. And he, and he countered that quote, prejudice is slavery, end quote, because black Americans could not be truly free from oppression until they had equal access to education, employment, and public transportation. In 1850, James W.C. Pennington, a formerly enslaved person and black Presbyterian pastor and the first black student at Yale Divinity School, delivered a speech before the Young Men's Christian Association in Glasgow, Scotland, during his travels throughout Europe. Pennington argued that black Americans tested the egalitarian promises of democracy in his home country. Was the United States indeed a nation in which all persons were born free and equal? with the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He said, if we born in America cannot live upon the soil, upon terms of equality with the descendants of Scotchmen, Englishmen, Irishmen, Frenchmen, Germans, Hungarians, Greeks, and Poles, comparing uh, persons of African and European descent, then the fundamental theory of the American Republic fails and falls to the ground. And the door once opened to kick out the people of color 
let others be prepared for their turn, end quote. As non-Black people of color, Asian Americans also tested the promises of equality and the principles of liberty. One historian of Asian America traces one of the earliest documented settlements of Asian Americans in the Southern states to Louisiana. In the 1840s, Filipino Americans established the fishing village of St. Malo and sent fish and shrimp to New Orleans for exports. Chinese American immigrants also came to the Southern states such as Louisiana and Mississippi in the latter half of the 19th century. The editor of the Vicksburg Times, a local newspaper in Mississippi, observed that some postbellum white planters welcomed Chinese Americans as better laborers than African Americans on their fields precisely because they were not black. Chinese Americans lacked voting rights and were not seeking, according to some whites, all the rights and promises of black emancipation. The Vicksburg Times thus favored the introduction of Asian Americans as a third race to maintain an economic, political, and social order upholding white dominance. White Mississippians initially recruited Chinese immigrants during Reconstruction as laborers to compete with and replace black Mississippians on white owned plantations. After federal officials departed the Southern states in 1876, effectively ending reconstruction, the same white Mississippians once again preferred black laborers because steps to racial equality had been halted with the restoration of white supremacy. Black persons were easier to exploit in unfair sharecropping arrangements. Chinese Americans in Mississippi did not have many resources, but some came with enough to open a small grocery instead of sharecropping. Others worked in these groceries until they accrued the necessary capital to open their own store. Neither Chinese nor black Mississippians had access to loans from white owned banks but Chinese American immigrants utilized an informal network of transnational relationships to start and sustain some small businesses. How were Chinese Americans able to succeed in an economy controlled and dominated by white persons and institutions? Their hard earned capital surely paled in comparison to white entrepreneurs, especially when considering the access and advantages white entrepreneurs held across real estate and banking resources. Several historians have noted that what Chinese Americans in Mississippi and other states found was a gap within a social system reinforced by caste patterns between white and black. And they established groceries where white entrepreneurs would not in black neighborhoods. In an interpretive history of Asian Americans, Su Cheng Chan delineates four analytical perspectives in studies of Asian Americans and other racially or ethnically minoritized groups in the United States. One is an assimilationist approach that measures success and failure through how a minoritized group adopts and integrates white and Western cultural norms. A second celebratory approach emphasizes the accomplishments of a few racially minoritized individuals without examining racist systems. A third systemic approach focuses primarily on the collective behavior of minoritized groups and the discriminatory obstacles they face in society. And the fourth and inclusive approach that sees, in Dr. Chan's words, 
members of minority groups as agents of history who make choices that shape their lives, even when these may be severely limited by conditions beyond their control. Chan utilizes this fourth approach to recount a history of Asian Americans as both immigrants and people of color. As immigrants, Chan argues that Asian Americans encountered some of the same barriers as European American immigrants, but as people of color, they were treated and mistreated as perpetual foreigners, denied access to many of the rights that European American immigrants possessed. Chan delineates the acculturation process of Asian Americans as multivalent. Many early Asian American immigrants were poor and came from the middling classes. Thus, they were familiar with class distinctions and economic discriminations. But with some exceptions, such as the Hakka among Chinese American immigrants, they had not experienced systemic prejudice on account of their race. In the United States, Asian Americans learned how to survive in an absurd but very real world where white-skinned people were treated better than black-skinned people. Erica Lee presents a rich and complex narrative in which Lee wrestles with whether a solitary notion of Asian America and one Asian American history are even possible when accounting for the staggering diversity of people that represent 24 distinct groups from different national origins and differences in generational and immigrant status. Lee holds therefore in productive tension, the presence of many individual stories and the collective threads connecting these manifold experiences while also contending that Asian Americans occupy unique and constantly shifting positions between black and white, foreign and American privilege and poverty. Anti-Asian racism manifested such that Asian Americans were regarded as yellow savages, perpetual foreigners and probationary citizens. Exclusionary immigration laws and the forced incarceration of Japanese Americans during the second world war are but two episodes of a long racist and oppressive history. Yet Lee finds any serious analysis of a race of race and racism across Asian American history must delve into the ways Asian Americans navigated the enduring black and white racial binary. Another interpreter of Asian America illumines possibilities for more culturally and historically specific approaches to Asian American theology. Gary Y. Okahiro advances the thesis that Asian Americans and African Americans are kindred people who share a history of colonization, migration, oppression, and resistance forged in the fire of white supremacy and struggle. In answering the ever-present question of whether yellow is black or white, Okahira argues the query is both a false dichotomy, since the United States is a nation of many, not two colors, uh, but a necessary reality, because America's two-tiered racial order forces Asians and all people of color, including those who are biracial, to choose between black and white. Okahiro identifies African-American support for Chinese-American immigrants in the late 19th century, such as Frederick Douglass's criticism of white Southern planters seeking to exploit Asian-American laborers with the same unjust economic and racist policies at the foundations of anti-black oppression and the vote of Blanche K. Bruce, the lone black American Senator in the US Congress that was against the Asian Exclusion Act in 1882 to demonstrate in Okiro's words, the extent, Okahiro's words, the extent and degree of solidarity felt by African-Americans toward Asian-Americans. Chinese-American activist Grace Lee Boggs tires, tirelessly worked against anti-black discrimination. In some of the FBI's files on Lee Boggs, she was listed as quote, probably Afro-Chinese, end quote, 
because of her marriage to a black man, James Boggs, and her ubiquitous presence on the front lines in struggles for civil, civil rights and labor justice. In 1968, the president of San Francisco State College, Samuel Ichie Hayakawa, a Canadian-born Japanese-American, attempted to divide a coalition of students of color, demanding more racial inclusion and ethnic representation at their school. These students were in the middle of the longest strike on an academic campus in the history of the United States. When Hayakawa pointed to the Asian American students as an, as an example of, quote, a model minority, end quote, for the other students of color to follow. And touting Asian Americans as a diligent people who were too busy focused on achieving success to devote their energies toward protesting racism, Hayakawa sought to differentiate the students of Asian descent from their black, indigenous, Hispanic, and Latino peers, and perhaps to perhaps cause ferment and discord among the student activists. The Asian American students were enraged, but their fury was solely directed at Hayakawa. The college president was derided as a banana, a derogatory term accusing an Asian American of being yellow on the outside and white on the inside, and the entire coalition resolved to remain united until they achieved their goal. It took approximately five months, but the students ended the strike when the college agreed to form the first Department of Ethnic Studies in the nation. Okahiro's call to mutuality and vision of solidarity resonate with me, but I am also wary of Okahiro's notion of African-Americans and Asian-Americans as a kindred people, because I recognize African-Americans and Asian-Americans as different people, peoples with different histories. The forced transatlantic migration of enslaved Africans is distinct from the trans-Pacific migration of impoverished Asians. I agree with Ellen D. Wu, who rightly observes that Asian Americans were profoundly shaped by understandings of blackness and whiteness, but not as silent and aloof bystanders. Asian Americans actively participated in and shaped the racial discourse of the United States. Some made courageous decisions and walked alongside African Americans in liberation movements for equal rights. Others resisted the ways white Americans and some Asian Americans sought to weaponize the notion of Asian Americans as a model minority to impugn African Americans for their comparative lack of economic wealth and to question the veracity of institutional racism. Yet, some Asian Americans made choices that reinforced the enduring injustices of white supremacy and anti-Black prejudice. The task of Asian American theology must grapple with the historic realities of traversing the Black and white racial binary. But Asian American identity and dignity need not be rigidly defined and measured by proximity to Blackness or whiteness. Black allyship is an important part of Asian American theology, but Asian Americans ought not be confined to the role of supporting characters in the larger American story. Asian Americans are main characters with their own worthy histories to claim and wondrous futures to forge. In closing, returning back to Princeton Seminary, Princeton Seminary recently concluded that the founding leaders of the institution opposed abolition and supported the American colonization society because they could not envision a racially just and integrated society. One of the seminary's explanations for its past crimes and sins was that their white Presbyterian ancestors had a quote, lack of theological imagination. 
end quote. But black and white Presbyterian abolitionists, including Theodore S. Wright, I think y'all named the building after him, provided the blueprint for such a society. In Manisha, in Manisha Sinha's History of Abolitionism in the United States, Sinha credits Theodore Wright as the quote, most responsible for raising the issue of racism, end quote, in the righteous struggle against slavery, as he and other black abolitionists, quote, made anti-racism at a programmatic as well as intellectual level an essential part of the abolitionist project, end quote. Wright's vision for black liberation was in full view of the white leaders at Princeton Seminary, and they intentionally chose to dismiss it. In 1837, the American Anti-Slavery Society, an organization with Theodore Wright on its executive committee, had Princeton Seminary in mind when it exoriated white Presbyterians for completely abandoning their Christian principles and choosing a false peace over truth and justice. Quote, here then we see the state of things in which the men who preside over our highest theological schools, the mints of public opinion on religious and moral subjects, would leave in quiet peace like the stagnancy over the slime of Sodom, the Presbyterian church, end quote. Was Princeton Seminary's problem really a lack of theological imagination? I believe there is a more obvious explanation that would result in a deeper and harder reckoning about foundational sins and the kind of Christianity that once endured at Princeton Seminary. Thank you. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.